Hi, my name is John Kim, and I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth. I share my feelings and revelations. I believe in casual or clinical, and with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. Super excited about today's guest, Dr. Adi Jaffe. He has such an amazing story. Uh, It's inspirational. I mean, it's like a movie from where he was to where he is now. I'm a huge fan of character arcs, and this man's character arc is stunning. Anyone who's gone through their hero's journey and come out the other side um, is always someone that I want to, uh, to, to get to know and, and learn what they've learned along the way, you know. And uh, Dr. Adi has slayed many dragons. His uh, story opens like uh, an episode of Breaking Bad, and it just drew me right in. He's got a, an amazing TED Talk. His story starts with addiction and ends with uh, a successful entrepreneur slash um, doctor slash man, husband, father, uh, doing amazing things. He also has his own podcast, Ignite, and uh, he just he's a good guy doing good things. Here is Dr. Adi Jaffe. I kind of wanted to start with... Uh, and I'm sure we'll hop around, but um, I, I really love your your TED talk, and I was watching it earlier today. And the opening of that uh, feels like it feels like the opening of an episode of Breaking Bad. It's so compelling. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> so uh, maybe we can start there. I want to front load that, and of course we'll get into other topics. Sure. Uh, but I think you have a powerful story. Um, can you tell us the? early days of addiction um you know what was your rock bottom i mean i guess you you talk about it in your ted talk yeah. um and then and then just you know how did you go from that to now uh a, you know a father author um mm. influencer you know everything that you're doing now sure you know? sure um i mean you know the real start of it if i'm honest about it was just me as a socially awkward anxious kid um mm. who always felt like I had to hide that fact and uh, and look really put together. I never felt like I was enough. Right. I remember it sounds insane for me to say it now because I'm a 43-year-old man trying to understand how this happened. But I was eight years old looking in a mirror thinking to myself that literally the phrase that I remember in my head is, you're not cute enough to just get by on that. You're going to have to figure something else out. Now, wow. I have a seven and a nine-year-old. Like I don't even understand why that introspection or that idea of self would even come in but it obviously did for a reason yeah i don't know what it was, you think but it did for a reason you think that's environment you think that's i mean did you i think something somebody around me said something mm-hmm. i think that's what happened is somebody around me said something and i either was told i wasn't as cute as i'd been before i don't know what it is right. I'm, i have a real problem with comparison in general like i'm always i'm always feeling like i'm behind um but that continued you know Again, I, I uncover things even after the TED Talk. I uncovered things about my in my memories that I never really thought of. I used to come back home from school in elementary school, doubled over in pain, my in stomach pain. Um, at the time, everybody was looking for physical reasons. It's completely obvious to me right now that it was psychological. Um, I was so anxious around other kids, it caused me physical pain. And, and so I kept going like that. Other things came on in my life and happened. My dad left us for a very short period of time, but he left us for another, uh, left my mom for another woman. Um, he left for less than a week, but it completely broke open my idea of trust and, and reliance on, on my father figure, my hero. I Wait, how, how old were you when he left? I think I was about eight or nine around the same time yeah. as all this was going on. Um, it, it, it's such a precious age, right? And you're such a sponge. Uh, and especially if you looked up to your dad, I mean, that's got to be crushing. Um, I hated him for another 20 years almost. Um, yeah. And not only that, but I now knew that I had to be the rock because I couldn't trust my dad to stick around. Right. So at eight, nine, ten years old, I'm trying to be there for my mom in a role that is just not appropriate. Like it's not I, I didn't have the tools, but my mom didn't trust my dad either. So she went along for the ride and we we played it along as if I'm some like trustworthy, great listener. And look at what field I ended up in. Right. So I got good at listening to people's pain and not internalizing it so much that it destroys me. 
Mm, right. But inside, I kept being this socially awkward, anxious kid. And we moved to the States when I was 14, right into high school. So mm-hmm. now the whole fact of, you know, uh, feeling weird and, and awkward was exacerbated by the fact that I really was weird and awkward. I was the foreign kid, uh, a new immigrant in high school with all these kids who knew each other. And um, the story I don't think I tell too much in the in the TED Talk was it was in a sleepaway camp along with a bunch of other kids where somebody showed me the solution. They pulled out a bottle of vodka I'd never drank mm. before. Mm-hmm. They handed it over. I was awkward and weird. I wasn't going to say no, even though I knew drinking wasn't supposed to happen when I was 14. And so I drank and to show everybody just how brave I was because I was like the court jester, funny guy, rebel. Um, right. I drank more than a lot of other people. I had like three or four swigs. And 15 minutes later, man, I felt great. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't anxious anymore. Uh, I could talk to girls and not feel weird about it. And so in a way, I, I'd find my solution that night. That night in that uh, camp lodge, I found the answer. I just didn't know the problem yet. But I started relying on alcohol to make me feel better. And without diving into every single aspect, I kept chasing the thing that will make me feel better. Right. And that landed me, like I talk about in the TED Talk, in a hospital, chained to the bed, because I'd gotten arrested after a motorcycle accident where they found a quarter to a half a pound of cocaine on me. Um, I'd gone through becoming a daily drinker and then a daily weed smoker and eventually a daily meth user. Mm. Um, In the search for either feeling okay or not feeling. I don't think I cared which one of those I got. Um, I just did not, I did not want to feel the feelings I was experiencing. And so I kept chasing an outside solution to make my insides feel okay. How old were you at the time when, uh, when you had the motorcycle accident and, and the drugs were found on you? I was 25, about to turn 26. Oh, wow. So at 25, were you reckless or um, was that a rare occasion? Or were you also selling as well? Yeah. So in my rebellion against my dad, I kept trying to be independent. Uh, I ended up going to college out here. My parents were paying for school. But in our family, it was kind of accepted and and known. I had to have a job for the other stuff. Um, But yeah, in my rebellion, I was using a lot of drugs. And so I couldn't afford them. And then my entrepreneurial streak showed up. And I realized that if I just buy a bunch of drugs instead of only what I need to use, I get a discount. Right. (laughs) Wholesale. Yeah, I just started. and And so I bought drugs wholesale. And then my friends bought them for me. They gave me my drugs for free. And then I... I bought more drugs and I got them for even cheaper. And so I started making a little bit of money out of it. And within about a year of selling, I was supporting myself and I could tell my parents in a, in a very emphatic way, I don't need you guys anymore. Mm-hmm. Now I was supporting myself. And I went headfirst into this underworld, the underbelly of LA, if you will. Um, started out with a handful of clients that were friends, but ended up with about 400, 500 clients, three to four people selling drugs for me. I was making about two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars a year, and wow. and this was two thousand, you know. So that's it was a good amount of money. Um, so so there's there's also there there's a piece to this which is interesting because um, you you can say that you were at your lowest point or you know doing drugs selling drugs all of that, but at the same time there's something very empowering about being so in, independent and yeah. you know there's also an entrepreneurial thing going on there and at twenty five. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, making two, three hundred thousand dollars at twenty-five. I mean, you you must have felt kind of like Al Pacino. <laughs> I felt <laughs> you know? relatively invincible, and I was yeah. climbing up. And you know, that's I think because of that, I understand a little bit of the conundrum that a lot of people who struggle with addiction face, which is everybody on on the outside is saying, "Can't you see that this is destroying your life?" And you can, you understand that to some extent, but you also see something they don't, which is the way the drugs are keeping your life together. Um, right. A lot of people miss that angle. Um, they, it's so, it, the, the wreckage is obvious. You know, I was completely isolated from my family. I had no friends to speak of. Literally, my, my friends were other drug dealers and strippers. Those were the people I was hanging out with all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but within that little kingdom, I used to just call it, it was like my kingdom of shit. Um, within that kingdom, 
I was royalty. And right. And it was very obvious. Every once in a while, though, I would pause. And anybody who struggles know this pause, knows this pause. Um, you find yourself kind of standing there. Oftentimes, it's the few moments where you're actually totally alone and with nobody else around you. And you mm -hmm. look around and you go, how the hell did I get here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but you you were you were getting everything that you probably didn't believe you had uh, uh, as an eight year old, everything. meaning validation, everything. approval, and then with money comes power. So it's almost like that world gave you a cape. You went from Clark Kent to Superman. It was I um, and I found something that I hold on to to this day, by the way, and it's one of the one of the few things that I still hold on to as a, as a a remnant of the teachings that I got during that time. And that is, it was never really an objective truth of who I was that I had a problem with. It was the belief in self. Because mm. when I had the money and I had the drugs and I had the self-confidence because I was high and had the money and the drugs all the time, all the things that I wish I had came. The problem was they came because of a false reality. Um, and so the things that came were false. And what I mean by that is I had girls. I was hanging out mm -hmm. with strippers every day. I was, you know, it's funny because even my, even in my player days, I was nowhere near, um, sort of the guys that you, you hear about. It wasn't like my numbers are not in the hundreds and hundreds or thousands. It's not, it's nowhere <laughs> near there. Cause I was still shy and like, I still, I was still right. serially monogamous. Um, but the point is when I, when I had the things I thought I needed to have to have self-confidence, the world reflected that back to me is what I'm saying. Um, right. What I realized over and over in, these in those little moments of self-realization in isolation in the middle of that world was that I was pretending to be somebody else though. Um, and so it didn't feel complete versus – so what happened was I got arrested and um, – I still didn't realize I didn't have the real full realization yet that I um that I could dig myself out of that place. You know, there's this thing that happens. I don't know if this ever happened in your life, John, but nothing happens in huge leaps. Everything happens in small incremental changes. Yeah. So I went from a socially awkward kid to a drug dealer with a sawed off shotgun in my car and a nine millimeter tucked into my um, my pants and guys selling for me and strippers coming over at 4 a.m. after work. And that transition sounds insane to anybody from the outside. Yeah. But it was half a degree changes, one after the other. You know, dad leaves and I start getting violent and aggressive with people because I needed to prove my independence. I start carrying around a knife. I'm nine or 10 years old. Um, wow. I went from a straight A student to a near failing student, not because I got dumber, but because. I was setting out to prove to my dad that anything he held important was not relevant to me. And one of the messages I always got from my parents was, if it's not perfect, it's not worth anything. And mm -hmm. so I said, screw it. I don't care about school. And I became a crappy student. And as these little changes amassed, I went from that kid to that drug dealer. Um, and the transition back to normality was also the same. And so that arrest, mm -hmm. people consider it my bottom. But I don't know, man, processing at downtown L.A. men's central county jail was another pretty amazing bottom. Um, spending a year in jail was hellish. What was that like? Um, you know, jail is what you it, it is what you see it in movies and, and shows. Now we've we've gotten enough of a glimpse into it. But what's hard to capture for me at least, was jail was this really bizarre combination of being incredibly bored, mm -hmm. incredibly scared. Yeah. And, from, from physical violence and stuff like that? Or? Yeah, and dehumanized all at the same time. So you're bored because there's more time than you've ever had to sit around and do nothing. You're scared because fights just break out whenever. Like when you're in a small cell – it's actually a little safer, but as your cells get bigger and you're with more people, people just start rioting like in the middle of the day. Um, you get into fights. I got in two fights in the year that I was in jail. Um, hmm. None of them did I initiate, 
but that doesn't matter. Right. But then you're dehumanized because the guards don't look at you as a person. Yeah, you're like an animal, right? So to them, you're an animal. To the other, to the other um, prisoners, you're, um, you know, kind of like a pawn in some way in, in the in the hierarchy of jail. Um, and in the interim between those things, you're bored out of your mind. And that's a really bizarre place to be in. Did you in prison um, because you're forced to sit with yourself? Did you read? Did you find enlightenment? Did you, you know, have those those uh, Sha- uh, Shawshank Redemption type of movie moments, or I, was I it just complete boredom? Okay. No, no, I did. I um, I mean, because I was in jail, not prison. I never sat in one cell long enough to get books that I really wanted, but I read anything mm. I could get my hands on. Yeah, I read a lot of Tom Clancy. Um, oh wow! <laughs> because they're really, they're really big books. Like that guy writes thousand page books. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Him, him and Stephen King, I think, uh, when when they pass, people aren't are going to realize how much they've put out in their lifetime. It's going to be staggering. It's insane. So Tom Clancy, like I would read these books on you know F eighteen pilots, essentially, and he gets so nitty gritty that it really distracted me from what was going on around because I felt like I was flying a hornet. Um, but I read anything. I read romance novels if they came across whatever I, I remember one time i picked up there was a romance novel that was i only got half the book i read the second half of the book i don't even know what happened at the beginning <laughs> i just right. didn't care but i'd always written i had a journal i used to write music um and so i would write songs and i i wrote when i was in uh in jail i wrote in hebrew because i didn't want people to read what i wrote because mm-hmm. it was very emotional and, and jail is not a place where you get to be emotional um but you know over everything I just got through it. Like I just had to get to the other side of it. Um, but the reality did you did you have family and friends to support you, and uh, did they visit you, or did you were you really on an, in an on an island? No. So, um, you know, the interesting thing was getting arrested brought my family back together mm. because my parents had to come to my rescue. My lawyer called them, uh, and I had some money, but the cops got all the money from my house, so uh, there wasn't a lot, and they got all the drugs, so I couldn't sell. Um, so it brought us back together. It also told my parents for the first time the reality of what was going on with me. And a lot of people, I assume, maybe people are listening right now, you know that your struggles are partially um, made worse by the isolation, by the lying and the pretending that you do for others. Right. So you'll be suffering and on the verge of falling apart inside, but going outside and smiling and saying, oh, I'm great. Yeah, I'm going to go away to, on vacation for a week, hoping you die. Um, and it's terrifying. So in that moment, when my parents finally found out what was really going on, there was actually a lot of relief. And our family, our family was really brought closer by it. So that was nice. Um, yeah, there was, uh, I mean, there's no, there was no more hiding, right? No, Once no more hiding. Right. I, I couldn't keep that up for too long. I ended up relapsing in rehab and I lied about that for a couple of months, but then that came out again. So uh, it took me a minute to understand how to live a transparent life. It took me maybe like a year. Um, but so no, my dad came about once a month to visit me in jail. They were living in New York, so it was a trek. Uh, but I'd been in sober living for a little while. So people from the sober living came about once every other month. Um, and also I had phone calls. So I would call my parents pretty much every day just to talk to them. Uh, so I how, were you, how old were you when you were released? I was 26 going on 27. Wow. Still, still young. Still young. Yeah. I only did a year, man. Um, mm-hmm. Because I cleaned up, so it took me, you know, I relapsed in one rehab, uh, got clean in the other one, or got sober, whatever, got, um, was drug free for eight months when I got sentenced. And because I had done a lot of self improvement, the judge gave me this chance. He gave me a year in jail instead of, you know, at the worst, I was looking at 13 to 18 years. Um, And the least that the um, DA was willing to offer was three years. But the judge gave me one. And with something called a hanging uh, suspended sentence. So he gave me seven years on the side saying, essentially, if you screw this one year up, you're going to go away for seven years plus whatever else you get. Wow. So that was uh, a reason to stay on the on the good side of things. So you're you're 26 or 27, uh, fresh out of jail. And um, assuming you didn't do drugs in jail, you've been sober for a year now. Um, where do you go from there? How do you, did you snap right back into, um, using or did you actually stay sober and and build a new life? 
great question. Actually, I stayed sober, um, but it was a really difficult road, man. Uh, I got out. I'd been completely isolated from my family, my society now for a couple of years because the rehabs and the jail and all that stuff. So the first thing I did was I went back to Israel and, and did like a little month long visit. And then when I came back, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I, uh, when I came back, I tried to go get work because if you remember, I didn't like school. Mm-hmm. I was okay. I graduated with about a right under a 3.0 GPA from UCLA with an undergrad, but I barely made it. Like I was using meth during finals. And I mean like going to a bathroom break and doing meth in the bathroom. Um, so I hated school. I tried to get a job, but I had nine felonies on my record, so I couldn't get hired wow. anywhere. Right. I mean, I was trying to get hired at, at Express at the mall. Like nobody would hire me. Mm-hmm. And I tried that for about six to nine months. And my parents were paying my rent at the time, which I know I'm incredibly uh, fortunate for having that resource, obviously. And uh, and after about six to nine months, we said, you know, we got to have another plan. This isn't working. And so I did the thing I thought I'd never do. I applied to go back to school. I didn't know that it would lead down a path. It was just the only thing I could do at the time. And I was very clear. The moment I walked out of jail, I was very clear on one thing in my life. And it was the clearest I'd ever been on almost anything. And that was, I will do whatever I need to do to not go back there. Right. Um, and that was a huge motivator, man. So Applied to go back to school. Cal State Long Beach did not ask, have you ever been convicted of a felony on their application <laughs> at the time? And so I applied and I got in and I started the master's program in psychology research over there. I was a 4.0 student, man. I was a straight A student for the first time since I was, I don't know, 11. We, we, we have that in common. Um, I was a CD student. Uh, my SAT scores are so low. Uh, I think I told you this on when I was on your podcast. You know, the vice principal called me down, and then when I went to get my master's, um, straight A's. I just I yeah. loved I loved psychology, and that's probably for you why yep. you excelled, right? I mean, you probably loved the topic. I loved the topic, and I had a level of motivation I never had before because I was a psych undergrad. Yeah, but I went because my parents, like in my in my family, it was. You were expected to graduate from college as a given. Like high school didn't even count. Um, college was a must. And really you were going for postgraduate somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I hated my parents and my dad. So Wait, Is that a uh, East Coast thing or a cultural thing? Or both? Um, my dad was an incredibly well-rounded, high-achieving person himself. So I think it was for sure a family thing. But mm-hmm. also in Jewish culture in general, it's um, education is highly lauded. So, yeah, it's like that with, with Asian culture too. Yeah, yeah. So I know. I mean, I, used, I taught in a Korean after school program. It's a, a very mm-hmm. similar way of thinking about it. Um, yeah, so it was just a given. It was just a given that was going to happen. And so I did college and I sucked at it. I just wasn't good. And then in grad school, I was the guy organizing the student study groups. Mm-hmm. I was just a completely different human because – a few things I talk about this in this workshop that I do for people around addiction. I discovered something in my journey to getting myself sober and rehab. And that was that I'd been pretending since I was eight or nine or 10 or 11 years old and I was done pretending. So when I wasn't okay, I needed to go fix the fact that I wasn't okay, not pretend that I was. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of other things like that finally landed for me. So in school, I was all in. I won, My parents were paying for school, but then I won a scholarship that covered all of my master's. I didn't even know existed because I, I was the best incoming student. Like I just, I kicked butt. And hmm. in the middle of all of that, really without intending, I also found my calling. I, um, when you get my, your master's, you normally get paired up with an advisor. Mm-hmm. And my advisor... Dennis Fisher, who's somebody I'm in touch with to this day, um, ran the Center for Behavioral Research and Services for Cal State Long Beach at the time. And it was essentially a food bank and a research center for people who were homeless or incredibly poor and most likely involved in drug use. And so Mm. 
we were doing research with these people, giving them food for answers, right? Um, and I loved it, man. I loved the work, even though it was insane. I really loved academia and I loved doing research. And so just like I was excelling at school, I ended up excelling in that place. Um, <coughs> sorry, I have a cough. Um, I ended up being, you know, kind of this star student of his as well, doing a lot of published work, which is really important in academia. Mm -hmm. So much so that this guy and a couple of other professors, even though they knew about my criminal past, even though they knew about everything that had happened before because I needed these ongoing letters to court showing that I was doing what I was supposed to do. He ended up going to bat for me and I became at the time at least the first student to get from that psychology program to the UCLA doctorate program in psychology. And for me, that was a huge victory. It was like, it, you know, I, I got my bachelor's at UCLA. So it was this huge homecoming of sort of saying, Hey, I may have, I may have gone off the deep end for a while, but I'm back. It's like a, a, a reunion almost. It was a reunion and a culmination of look, you know, we talked a little bit about some of your story, but one of the terrifying things when you find yourself isolated, alone, depressed, at the bottom, whatever your bottom is, is the complete lack of belief and trust that you can make it back. Yeah, absolutely. That's the fear, right? Like, if when you were depressed, you believed when other people would tell you, hey, this is just a phase, you're going to get to the other side of it, the depression wouldn't be as meaningful. Right. It's basically um, uncertainty. I mean, it's kind of what's what's happening now in the world, right? It's the unknown. Uh, it's the um, the loss of hope. Yeah. And without that, you really have nothing. I mean, to, to actually believe that you can, uh, that's, a, that's a huge leap, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I... Um, like when I made it to UCLA, it was proof, even though in my head I was five years behind and I'd screwed up, it was still proof that like I'm back on the path. Right. Um, and not only did that feel good, but that's something I try to instill in the people that I work with today that it doesn't matter how far down you've gone, with the right support and the right tools, you can make it and the, make the rest of your life anything you want. Yeah, so you actually experiencing that, um, reaching UCLA, like your foot on campus again, but now in the uh, the, the doctorate program. I mean, that's that that gave you fuel, right? That gave you ninety two oh, octane, and so then much. from there on, it seems like you were just all building, no? So much, man. Um, I mean, I kind of look at the whole journey as building, but it started out so small, and mm -hmm. then it just kept expanding on itself. Um, I give this free workshop every Friday, almost every Friday um, on addiction. And in it, I say it's insane to me that I can tell this story and then flip it to, you know, I've now been on, I don't know, every major network thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe I've missed a couple, but like CNN, HLN, uh, ABC, you know, I've written for God knows what uh, in terms of publications I write for psychology today. I've had, we were talking about this the other day, like on Psychology Today, I think it's something like 3.5 million reads for my articles. Yeah. yeah. The book has sold like 10,000 copies now. We've had a million downloads for the podcast. Um, I am honored, humbled, and amazed every day because I never, ever, ever, and I think this is important for people to hear, I, I couldn't have even wished for the life or the impact that I've had mm -hmm. because I didn't know it was possible. So I didn't know that I could wish for it. Uh, and so I'm just honored that I, you know, that I get to share my struggle as a way for other people to connect to their potential. Yeah. And you know, what I love about your story is the arc of it. Um, uh, I was talking to Dak Shepard one day and I was telling him that I, I think his, cause he comes from addiction and all of that stuff. And, um, I, I told him his character arc is so beautiful and I mean, I, I don't think I had enough buy-in, so he probably thought I was crazy, but <laughs> I, I really love where, where you were, 
um, where you went and where you are now in that arc, it's so vast. It's so wide. You know, there's so many act breaks and, 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 and it, it's such a rich story that there's no way that someone can hear that and not think like, oh, that guy did that. Holy shit. I wonder what, what's possible for me. You know, like your story itself um, is inspirational. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you. I mean, look, the reason I tell it over and over and over is it's not the worst that things can get, but it's pretty fucking bad. And and I use it, first of all, as a reminder to myself to some extent and to keep myself in check. Secondly, I want people who are terrified right now to be able to look at that and go, oh, fuck, I'm, I'm not that bad. Okay. Right. If that right. guy could make it, I'm a chance. Or on the flip side, you know, like again, I when I got arrested, man, there was a gun I fashioned like a uh, a quick release holster next to my bed um, because I'd been held up at gunpoint, I'd been robbed. Um, I now had a broken leg, so I couldn't even run. So I I like literally for protection, I had a gun. Um, and Thank God that when the SWAT team came into my house at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, I didn't fucking pull it because we wouldn't be talking now. Yeah, you wouldn't be alive. <laughs> um, so I want that those pieces to the story to be out because I need people to understand. When I say it doesn't matter how far down you've come, I mean it doesn't matter how far down you've come. I don't care what it is. My story even pales in comparison to some of the stories I've heard from clients over mm -hmm. the years. So, but I don't get, I don't want to tell their stories uh, that's for them to tell. So, um, I, I honor and respect everybody's journey and I want to do everything that I can to be like a beacon of hope for the people who are out there right now feeling hopeless. Is there, so now that you are a quote unquote successful and you've accomplished so much, uh, uh, and of course I hear gratitude in your voice and there's, uh, you know, um, I mean, I don't know if you have a gun today, but you're not, you know, in fight or flight. Um, I'm not allowed it, to it, own a gun. Oh, you're not allowed to. Okay. Um, do you have nunchucks? <laughs> uh, it, it, it is that eight year old that we started this conversation with the... Um, the approval seeking or the insecure, uh, the one that wants to fit in, mm. uh, does he still rear his head? Uh, what's your relationship with that eight year, eight year old now, now that you've actually, you know, um, gone on your hero's journey and come back to the village changed? Um, that's a great question. And the sh I mean, look, the short of it is yes, he's still around. Um, I am more comfortable with him. So I get to have conversations with him instead of, instead of trying to run away. I think that's one of the things I learned is I don't get to run yeah. away from that kid. Um, what I get to do is say, you know, I have this thing that I tell, I tell my clients this story a lot. When I was in college, I don't know, I'll get, I'll get raw and vulnerable uh, on, on the podcast. I, that's, I think that's what always ends up serving people best anyway. So when yeah. I was like 17, 18, 19, um, I was drinking all the time and smoking a lot of weed. And paranoia was setting in around weed. But one of the specific things that it centered around was my sexual orientation. Um, mm -hmm. I really had a lot of questioning around that. And A, nobody told me that that was okay to question. And because of the paranoia, it would go pretty dark and deep. So that was going on. And I had a lot of gay friends. So it wasn't like anybody in my life was closed off to it. And I don't even think mm -hmm. my parents would have had a problem with it. But internally, I was struggling with a lot. And... And I was still that eight-year-old insecure kid anyway, so I didn't talk to anybody about it. And during that time, I would go through these phases. This is before texting, but you know, people had phones, um, but not a lot of most people didn't have cell phones at all yet. So, like, you had phones. We had uh, email, and that was pretty much it for communication with people. And so every once in a while, I would end up in these times where I would either email or call some people and leave voicemails and messages and nobody would get back to me. Mm. And sometimes it would last hours. Sometimes it was last like a day or two, a couple of times it lasted three or four days. And what I mean by that is I'm putting out these things to people. Hey, what, what are you up to? You want to hang out? 
I'm just calling to check in what's what's going on and nobody crickets nobody would call yeah okay and my voice in my head would go crazy um you see nobody likes you all your friends yeah, have been course. pretending your whole life you're just an outcast you're a loser that voice had a field day with those experiences i went through this cycle for years man for years and i would get depressed like mm. For days or a week or two at a time, I would sink into this depression. I wouldn't leave the house. I would drink and smoke weed and sit around and get worse and worse and worse. Um, and, you know, rent this is like blockbuster day. So I would like rent DVDs and just sit around and watch movies. And then one day I had this insight. And I, I remember that like nobody was coming back to me. And I was sinking into a depression about it. And I said, hold on. You've been here before. You've been in this place where nobody got back to you and you were depressed and then you went into a hole. And if I remember right, every time you've been in this place, and it's a very like inception slash matrix moment to have with yourself the first time it happens. If you've been here before, there's a good chance that what you're experiencing right now is the same thing you've experienced those times. Mm-hmm. And in almost all those other times, by maybe the most three days, people started calling you back. Because I, would, I wouldn't call them. I'm, a, I'm the guy, you show me once that you maybe don't like me, and I erase your phone number, and we never talk again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just complete defense and, and wanting to protect yourself. Right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not reaching I mean, back out. You hate me. I'm not talking to you. So right. two, three days later, five hours later, these people would start calling back, and I'd have friends again. <laughs> and so, right and so in that inception moment i realized that was the first time i know having a, an internal conversation with myself you've been here before this passes you still need to figure out how to pass the time but maybe this isn't as bad as you think it is okay mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that was the first time and i've you know i was about 19 or 20 when that happened and since that day i've been trying to get better at having that internal observer conversation with myself about almost anything. Um, my wife and I almost ended our relationship because I cheated on her and she found out and she almost left me. Um, yeah. I've had hundreds of opportunities to get hopeless at life again. And I always remind myself that what I actually need to do in those moments is look inside, recognize the pain, understand it, not try to run away from it and hide it and talk to it and get more comfortable with it and figure out how to solve it. So that kid comes up and I always remind him, hey, you might be feeling awkward right now, um, but that's okay. Everybody feels awkward. This too shall pass. Find the techniques, the tactics, the things that you know over time, the tools that have worked for you to either deal with this, grow from this, or distract yourself for a little bit until it passes. Yeah, I love what we're talking about. Uh, and the reason why I asked that question is because I think one of the greatest misconceptions about self-betterment is that as you change and you experience secondary change, um, you know, you completely delete or kill off those those parts of you. And I don't think it's true. I don't think it's about because we all have that eight year old you're talking about. Right. I have mine. Um, everyone has theirs, you know, even in high school, uh, maybe it maybe you're not eight, maybe you're 17, maybe you're 19. Yeah. But um, those parts of us that are uh, hurting, insecure, approval seeking, all that stuff. I don't think it's about um, locking that part of you into a hope chest. I, agree. I think it's, and if and if you do, it's going to get out and it's going to be worse. I think it's about um, friending it. I think it's about giving that uh, eight-year-old uh, compassion and love, and like you said, um, having a better relationship with that that eight-year-old part of you. Yeah. You know? And I think in that way, growth is more about a reunion, and that that's what I think uh, connecting to yourself and and evolution and and, and growth is. It's not about um, dismissing, rejecting, or killing parts of you that you don't like because when you do, it's just going to come back stronger. <laughs> I'm, in so much, Hulk. I'm in so much agreement and um, – or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? Like right. Um, all those things are, are examples of the same thing, which is, look, if you really – like I studied behavioral neuroscience uh, in psychology when I was at UCLA – when you understand how our learning and how our memory works, you understand that the 
there are two principles that we talk about all the time in psychology and, and even in lay populations um, that are complete falsehoods when you truly understand how, how the brain works. First of all, you don't forget. Mm-hmm. Let's just get that clear right off the bat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Your you brain forget. doesn't forget. It doesn't have the mechanism to forget. There is no system. So the way memories are created, it's a network of neurons that operate together. So um, what you saw, what you felt, what you touched, what you heard, um, the way your body was regulated at the moment of the memory is the memory. Your mm-hmm. brain created like a snapshot of its own activity when that thing was going on. And that is how you remember that trip you and your family took to Hawaii or um, the time that you fell off the bike and you really hurt your knee. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what you remember. What you remember is that. Um, oh, sorry. C- can we? Can you hold off for one second? I got to get my phone to somebody. One second. Yeah. No problem. I think Joe Rogan once in his podcast, uh, when his guest went to the restroom, continued to have a conversation with himself, and uh, I'm going to copy that. And while he's gone, um, I'm just going to express my inner thoughts. You know, one of the reasons why I asked. Um, Dr. Addy to be on this podcast was because uh, he is so raw and transparent and um, I think especially as a male and not only a male but also a male who's uh, also uh, studied psychology and has a PhD a lot of letters after his name um, it just you know I feel like we're running with the same flag yeah Addy are you there oh sorry I'm just I'm feeling in space as you're going to the uh, doing your thing love it no I just have to give (laughs) thank you I had to give my kid um the phone for his piano teacher. Everybody's doing everything remotely now, so his piano teacher is not coming in. He's uh, he's doing a remote piano lesson. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, uh, and 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 by the way, you have three kids, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I tend to bird walk, and I I I'm I'm hoping that you will bring us back to this memory thing because I think it's really important. But um, I have a 14 day old. Oh my god! I, Congratulations, I, I, man. man. Thanks, man. I don't know how uh, you you did this three times. I mean, I'm assuming it gets easier, but all those stories that you hear about uh, sleep deprivation oh, yeah. and you know, if the, well, you're in it right all, now. Oh my god! Like I, I mean, it's it's basically survival. It is it? And uh, with the coronavirus uh, happening right now, I'm not even. I mean, I'm aware of it, but it doesn't really affect me because even if even if we weren't in. Um, you know, this kind of isolated uh, social distancing environment, I would still be, be, nothing would change in my life because I'd be at home. You'd be at home Uh, locked together. No, no, totally. Exactly. First first of all, it does change. And very quickly, actually, it evolves. But I would say the first month or so, especially with the first baby, you're in full survival mode. Yeah, You're just trying to function. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so don't worry about it. It is is exactly what, what it's supposed to be. Uh, and it'll be great. So you'll you'll just get used to it, like anything else in life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, but uh, one thing that I'm realizing is what women go through that I had no idea. I mean, not even the birthing process, but um, things like latching oh. and uh, breast milk, and, and on top of that, the uh, stigma and uh, you know the what society standards uh, that you buy into, like struggling with that, and yeah. I'm just being a witness to the whole thing, and I'm like, holy shit! They don't just carry the baby and 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 all of that for nine months, but then you know afterwards, everything else you have to go through, and I'm just so super um, in awe, I'm just like mad respect, yeah, just yeah. to 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 it's, women and also any single parent. God, I don't know how how they did it. To this day, I don't understand how single parents do it. But when you see what women do to propagate our species and and create more humanity, um, the falsehood that men are the stronger sex um, leaves you very quickly. I was like, oh, I mean, if it were up to men, I think if it were up to men, society would have like 50,000 people. We we would be um, uh, uh, extinct. Extinct, yes. Yeah, we would, we would or, or we would just barely manage. We'd be like, "Hey, Joe, uh, you have to have a baby because society's about to end." You're like, "Oh, right. damn it, I'm not doing that." You know, right. it would be insane. Um, no, women are forces, forces, and my yeah. my wife works. We have three kids. It's insane. It's just insanity. Um, I'm honored to be part of uh, all the women in my life. In, in their in their journey because it's magical to watch 
Yeah, with, absolutely. With zero respect. Like none of them get respect for what they do and they do it better than I could. So Yeah. I, I Well Thanks for thanks for um, saying that. I mean, I think uh, just as two males having a conversation, uh, you know, um, just kind of holding that on high and shedding some light to it, I think is is important. Uh, but I want to say that while you were doing your thing um, or letting someone in, uh, I just mentioned that one of the reasons why I wanted you on my podcast was because of how transparent you are. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think uh, it's important. Uh, for men today and we have had some conversations about this uh, to show themselves and so you do and I love that um, and also uh, someone with uh, his le- letters after his name you know someone yeah. who uh, is a uh, a doctor and is successful and all of that usually people in that field that space are very private they don't show themselves and the fact that you do is something that I, I respect and thank you man you know, thank all, you you know yeah. it's something that gets taught we get taught that you're not supposed to be a person. You're supposed right. to be this like right. blank tablet. And I just think it's bullshit. Everybody knows you're not a blank tablet. So um, why let them imprint this perfect version of who you are, which we use to our advantage. Let's be honest about it. We like for other people to think we're perfect, but it, oh, puts, sure. us, it puts us in a weird situation and it puts them in an unrealistic world that exacerbates their struggles. And like I was saying before, um, we don't forget. Your brain doesn't, it doesn't have a mechanism to take that network of activation. The time where, I don't know, I'll share a story from my past. The time that I asked this girl out and she mm-hmm. said no to me on the phone. And then the next day at school, all of her friends were mocking me all day for having been rejected by her. As I say that, I remember walking into school and having her best friend say, oh, I heard you talk to Shelly. Like, I feel it. I know mm-hmm. where I was. Our brain does not erase memories. What it does instead is every single time, and this is the trick that a lot of people don't recognize, and it's something that I, I do big time with my, uh, with my clients and my online programs and individual. What it does do is every time you bring the memory back up, it reactivates the, net- the network, and that gives you an opportunity. It gives you an opportunity to reframe and change the memory mm. um, because whatever new information gets acquired at this reactivation will now get consolidated back into the new version. So we do get to play with our memories, but we don't get to erase them. Um, well, let me ask you this then. If you, um, um, yes, we don't get to erase them, but is is what we're playing back accurate? Meaning like when I, th- you know, when you go back to school and you um, remember, you know, the fight that happened by the lockers or the, sure. the tree where you get, or the even your classroom and, you, and you're like, oh my God, look how tiny those chairs are. Or I, in my head, I see it as this big magical tree, like, like big fish. And then you go there and it's tiny and you know, that hasn't changed. It's basically your perception has changed. Yeah. And when you're young, when you're younger, the world is so big, you know? So and true. I wonder, I wonder when we play it back, we're playing back the, the, the exaggerated version we're playing back the version oh, that had yeah. through the 12 year old and so yeah it's going to be amplified and i think a lot of times when they're um people are, are, are playing back old love memories they're playing back things that are so magical and and you know so so uh, so much dopamine <laughs> shooting into their brain sure. but, but if you actually went back to to when it really happened as an adult it it wasn't it wasn't like that yeah i don't you know people say there's t- uh, three versions of reality yours mine's and the truth Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's true. <laughs> I don't know that there is a truth, um, because our brain. Well, I mean, the, the truth is just, to, I guess, whatever lens you see it at, at the time, right? Yeah, because you know, two people can be standing. Like I'm, I'm looking out the window of my office right now, and there are thousands of pieces of information in front of my eyes. What my brain captures, processes, and keeps now becomes the truth for me of what I've taken from that experience. Right. And so you talked about a fight or any of those kinds of things. Different people in that moment perceived and retained different things. Yeah. And and those become their truths. And you can fight. That's why people fight so much about what happened. Um, And I know you know this, I'm sure, but when you talk to people in relationships, I go, okay, we got to get out of the details of what specifically happened because that's not the problem here. Right. The problem is that we don't trust each other and that um, – Stuff happening underneath. Yeah, it's the, it's the layer underneath it. So 
for a lot of people to recognize, you know, you don't get to erase your memories. It's not like you're going to get to a place mm-hmm. one day where these things that happened to you as a child will disappear, but you do get to change your relationship to them. And, you know, you mentioned like, uh, you know, I talked about, um, sexual orientation. I talked about a lot of these things. I think a lot of people, they try to run away from the things about themselves that make them uncomfortable. Sure. And that's the second piece that I want to talk about. You know, you said compartmentalize. But again, back in the day, we used to think that the way the brain works is like you would have this area, almost like a drawer. And it's like, oh, this cell, if you open it, it has the memory of riding a bicycle. Um, this area has our love stories in this area has how we relate to our family, but it's not true. Your brain's knowledge rests. It might get processed in different areas, but your experience of the world is comprehensive. It includes the vast majority of your brain areas involved in each one of these memories and skills, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm saying that is it's a falsehood that you can compartmentalize parts of yourself. So, what we're really talking about when people are saying, well, I'll just kind of put away and, and hide away this part of myself, that requires ongoing effort. That, requ- that means that on a regular basis, you are pushing down, you are drowning, you are keeping at arm's length or stiff arming that part of yourself. Um, you're not allowing yourself to think about it explicitly. You're not talking to anybody else about it. You're not writing about it. You're not acknowledging its existence. But in order to do all of that, you have to actively suppress it. Mm. And I think that I think there are a lot of people in society that go through life troubled, stressed, um, anxious, depressed, hopeless, because so much of their cognitive effort is maintaining that compartmentalization keeping it separate you're saying right non-acceptance yeah like let's say denial i'll take it to a to the nth degree because i've heard so many stories from clients of mine like let's say you were molested by a family member when you were younger Mm -hmm. whether you explicitly remember it or not it has caused disruptions in the way you see the world obviously we all understand that of course to keep that at bay and not acknowledge it and not process it at to its fullest extent means that your brain has to do something every time a memory comes up, every time something jogs your the recesses of your um, your compartmentalized self and shows you, hey, I'm really uncomfortable about around these family members or around this sort of house or in this neighborhood, whatever it is that comes up for you. You have to actively repress it. And it might happen once a day. It might happen once a week. It might happen once a year. I don't care how often that happens. But as these things amass, you're now spending a good amount of your time hiding from parts of yourself. And I think everybody who's listening to this right now can at least understand logically, even if you're doing it in your own life, that if you're constantly hiding from yourself, it's really, really hard to be happy and content in life. Yeah, absolutely. But also, I think when you put things in boxes like that, um, you, when it triggers you, because it will, uh, whether it's in a, you know you're 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 making out with someone, or you see something, or, or something triggers you yes. and forces you to play that memory back, what you're doing is now you're just re-traumatizing yourself, and then it has power yes. over you forever. You know. Yes. So when you say uh, you can't erase an, a memory, but what you can do is establish a new relationship, which I love, how do you do that? How do you, so taking the example of, um, you know, so for me, I have a memory where in eighth grade, um, I had this really expensive skateboard that, you know, I saved up all my money and it was like brand new. And on that day, uh, someone just grabbed it and took it, you know, he was a bigger kid. Um, he did bring it back. Uh, he wasn't like like um, harassing me. He just, as, for a joke, took it. And when he took it, you know, for that hour of me not having it, I was in this kind of fight or flight panic. Um, I just felt like my my world was over. Yeah. Um, but taking such a you know a simple example, how would I establish a new relationship with that memory if 
you know, I remember it as something being being taken from me and feeling, you know, powerless and defeated. Oh, and, and yeah, totally. So uh, I love this because um, there's so many places we can go with this, but and I don't know, so we'll explore. Um, this kid was how much older than you? He was like a, a year older, and he was a bully. I mean, he was he would he, I was afraid of him. He could he was the, the kid that could uh, beat anyone up. You know, he's an eighth grader yep. with a mustache. There you go. Uh, did you know <laughs> you, you'd known him for a long time? I I knew him, and because I was afraid of him, uh, I was I was very friendly with him. Got it. Uh, yeah. What was his family background? Oh, I mean, I don't I don't know anything about his family. I'm sure I'm sure him. I'm sure his dad was abusive, and he came from you know um, a hard life. Yeah. So. I think one of the first places to go to, especially if you don't know it, that's great. You can make up a whole story about it. Um, mm -hmm. Create a humanizing story for who he was. Right. And create a story where you actually understand him and the fear that he had of, of the adults or the people around him so much that he needed to exert control. And I'm just thinking about this. You went through the experience, so this speaks much more vis viscerally to you. Um, I can give an example that, that haunts me to some extent, so it's it's similar. But um, you can, if you can humanize him in that process, I wonder he if he doesn't. He does. He no longer becomes a monster. You're no longer. A, afraid he's of not. Him. Yep. A, he's no longer the monster. But I almost wonder if there's a place where you say, you know what? Without knowing him, being able to take that skateboard for an hour or two and feel like he was the man because of it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was. I was actually giving him an opportunity to feel better about himself. And so in some weird way, I was kind of like of service um, without yeah, realizing. Yeah, I love that, man. Um, it's, it's taking the power back. Uh, he was poor and for, you know, he, his parents would never buy him a $150 skateboard. And this yeah. is, you know, the, the 80s when that's kind of unheard of. Yep. Um, so him taking it, I think might've been a reaction of, you know, I, I don't deserve this. No one's going to buy this for me. Let me just grab this from this little Korean kid for an hour and two and pretend like it's mine. Yeah. And, and again, as an adult, I think you can understand that, right? Yeah. And you know, I, I've, um, I've used this example many times just because it's kind of a silly example. Um, but I've never actually talked about it like this with anyone. Um, because you know, I minimize it and, uh, I just had this revelation. Like, so what you basically did was you, you reframed it. You turned a two dimensional kind of cardboard cutout scene into a, a documentary or actually, you know, a story, a three dimensional yeah. space. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you basically humanize him. And then I realized that it's uh, just a shadow cast by my own hand. It's not a monster. Yeah. So we all get to do this. We all get to, um, I got held up at gunpoint by a guy who stole like $250,000 worth of drugs, put me about $20,000 in debt, and also just like beat me up and put a gun in my head, which is a scary fucking thing to happen to you. Um, it's hard to describe how scary it is to have a gun put to your head until somebody puts a gun to your head. Oh yeah, I can't imagine, right? And like we all think about how brave you would be and then you like shit your pants because somebody just put a gun to your head. But sure. I... um. Like I was hogtied. It was a nightmare. And up until literally oh, a couple man. of years ago, I would wake up sometimes wanting to go out and kill that guy. It's sure. 20 years later. Um, but the the fear would take over me so much, just animalistic fear. And I remember somebody told me that they potentially knew him. He was like a gang member from Santa Monica, blah, 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 whatever. And, um, and I remember at some point I really had to stop and think think and tell the story but not from the victim mentality but like tell the story and really un try to understand him and supposedly he did this to somebody else with it shot him like all this stuff and really think about it from this standpoint like i got robbed and hogtied but my my life's pretty damn good right now and from what i hear and understand he's either dead or his life sucks mm, sure so so he got a quarter million dollars worth of drugs for me and I ended up doing okay. Like I had to come to terms with that and it took the power away from the experience to some extent. You know, when, when, um, when, uh, you see all these memes, especially now with the uh, wellness, uh, being commercialized and, and the internet, um, one of the things you always see is, uh, you know, what story do you want to tell yourself? 
and people pass that around a lot, which is great. And what we're actually talking about is what that truly means, you know, um, redefining, reframing, um, what relationship do you want to have with your memory? Yeah. Well, this is the beauty. And I learned this from my wife a lot, to be perfectly honest, uh, speaking of the power of the women in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> we can say that we understand that life is subjective and all about perspective. Like we can understand that logically. But if we understand that and we still just keep moving forward with the old perspective we've always had, and who cares? It's, it's, like, it's like if somebody told you one day, hey, uh, you've been hammering all these screws into the wall and it's just been jacking up your wall and not really holding up anything the way you want it to. Um, I have this other tool. It's called a screwdriver. If you use a screwdriver, it's a totally different experience. You don't hit the thing forward. You, you screw it. You turn it. And the screw will hold everything that you want it to hold. And you go, oh, wow, that's really cool. I never knew that. And then you grab the hammer and you hit the next screw into the wall. Um, that's, that's ignorant. Like it's, it's a mm-hmm. little, you know, so the goal of learning the tools to me is to figure out how to best use them. Yeah. Not just to have the knowledge. And I think that's where I leave the... That's probably why I left academia to some extent. I wanted to stop talking about the ways we need to change things, and I wanted to change things. Yeah, I mean, um, and also the information is free and it's everywhere, and information alone is not going to change anything. You're just going to know a lot of things to actually change your life. You do have to process. You have to drop in. You got to, you know, what what we say in our our business, do the work. Um, I think we live in a world where – a lot of people are absorbing a lot of information, but not really doing much with it. I so agree with that. Well, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, I, I love what we talked about. I love where it went. Tell us where they can get uh, more of you. Sure. Uh, I mean, look, the easiest place is adjaffe.com. We set that website up to make this answer easy. Um, and if people are particularly interested in the recovery or relationship work that we do, if you go to ignited.com, but that's a weird spelling. It's I-G-N-T-D, ignited with some vowels missing. Um, we're also there, and that's where we do a lot of the relationship workshops and things of that nature. And we obviously love to talk to anybody who needs help there. Yeah. So um, jump into, you know, go through any door, whether you're on uh, his website or uh, podcast or Instagram. And, uh, you know, it all connects and leads to him. Uh, check out his te- TED Talk. It's amazing. And, uh, you know, uh, I think you said you offer a free group or something on Friday. We do. So pretty much every Friday I hold a, an addiction online workshop. Yep. The content changes a little bit Friday to Friday, um, but it, it stays pretty much the same. So it's, it's kind of like a, a reintroduction of what addiction is and a reconceptualization of what you can do about it. Awesome. So, guys, check that out. And, uh, Doctor, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I Thank you so it. much, John. This has been this has been really, really great. I love the work you do. I love the I love the personal touch you've given a field that has historically, as you mentioned, been trained to not include the person in it, which I think is ridiculous. So thank you for that. Mm. Thank you. You're doing the same. All right, be well. And uh, what can you give us two tips on what to do? And I don't know when this episode will come out uh, in these days, in this time right mm-hmm. now where there's a virus and there's isolation and everyone's, uh, you know, feeling panic and fear. Sure. Sure. Um, I'll give you the same tips I'm giving all my clients. So number one, change is going to happen, guys. The world is going to be throwing stuff at us always. Um, this is unprecedented. But if you've lived long enough, every 10, 11, 12 years something unprecedented is going to happen and it's going to seem like the end of the world. Mm -hmm. What I see as the most important thing in these times is to have a set of self-care tools that make sure that even when compromised, you're showing up as the best possible version of yourself. So drinking water, eating the best things that you can eat, and even the easiest version of meditation, like a one breath, you know, deep inhale, holding and slow exhale kind of a thing will re-regulate cortisol and some other um, and heart rate and things of that nature and just help bring you back into the space that you're in to some extent so you can react and, you know, be helpful and not uh, just in panic. But that's that's one thing is 
take care of yourself. The second piece is just to have the knowledge. If you want to use this time to do some of those self-exploration, self-growth, self-development things that you've been holding off on because you quote unquote didn't have the time. Well, guess what we have now? We've got the time. So commit that time to yourself in whatever breaks you have in the middle of your day and make this a, a moment of self-growth for you instead of only a moment of panic and concern. Thank you so much, guys. There's your prescription. Uh, don't just uh, sit on the information. Actually do something about it and put that into action. Love Thank it. you. Thank you so All much, right. man.